Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the table at a dance competition? Exactly what are the judges looking for anyway? This is Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. Each week, we'll cover a different topic related to the world of competitive dance from the perspective of the judges behind the table. The world of competitive dance is full of strange, interesting, and dare we say, ridiculous expectations. From full faces of makeup to tons of money spent on a three-minute dance, the outside world might not quite get it, but we do. Today we're taking a look at some of the most ridiculous expectations in competitive dance and hearing from dance parents, judges, and podcast fans. Hello everyone and happy holidays from Making the Impact. I am your host, Courtney Ortiz, and I'm here with my co-host, Leslie Mueller. Hey Courtney, happy holidays. Happy holidays! The holiday season has been here for a while, and I cannot wait to celebrate Christmas with my family. Me too. I'm doing the first time of trying to split the holidays with my boyfriend's family and my family, so we have, you know, an over the river and through the woods kind of scenario happening with a a flight and a car rental and another flight. It's a lot, but I'm excited. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh, yeah. That that sounds like a lot. I'm sure that so many people have to uh, do the same exact kind of deal to make sure they get family time with both sides of the family uh, all over the country and world. So that's going to be a fun one. You're going to be quite busy. <laughs> so busy, but at least we're going to Florida for part of it and Georgia for the other part. So we'll at least nice. avoid some snow, maybe, maybe have a little yeah. bit of beach time in the Florida f- part of the world. So I'm looking forward to it. What are y'all doing? Well, we're heading back to Maryland. Luckily, my boyfriend and I are both from Maryland. We actually grew up about 10 minutes away from each other in our small town, but his family has now moved further away. So it's about a 30-minute drive, which is not bad at all. And so lucky that we are both able to see our families during the holiday season and we will open up tons of presents. And actually, it's going to be a little crazy at my parents' house because they just got a new kitten. What? Because it, yes, I don't know if I told you. <laughs> you didn't. This is news. You're hearing. I'm hearing this for the first time, along with you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so, if if people follow me, you might know a little bit about my Persian cats. I'm a cat, a crazy cat lady, but I love the Persian cats. And my the OG Gatsby started this all, and he's a beautiful mm-hmm. orange cat. And Everyone has fallen in love with Gatsby ever since they, they've met him, and people fall in love with Persians after meeting him. So I've turned people into Persian cat lovers all over the place. Uh, my boyfriend's best parents. friend got a Persian. <laughs> now my parents got a Persian, and they just couldn't resist. They had to get another one. They said they needed a playmate oh for Winston. So oh. they just got a brand new little tiny, like, three-month-old kitten. Oh. It's so fluffy baby. and cute. It's a baby. What's his name? His name is Poncho. Poncho. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so Poncho! It's going to be a cat Christmas for sure. It's going to be all four Persian cats. I at was my about to say because your cats travel with you, so yep. Gatsby and Chico are headed down to Grandma's house. Yeah, with the, Winston uh, and Poncho, the, <laughs> the feline cousins. I don't really know if they're cousins, but. Yeah, I, I yeah, Sib- I guess I don't siblings, know. What I are they? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a lot a, of cats. <laughs> it's going to be a fun Christmas, y'all. So, 
I hope that everyone out there listening is having a lovely holiday season and spending it with friends and families. And maybe uh, you're you're able to give this episode a listen on your drive or flight to wherever you're heading this holiday season. Yes, and we've got we've got some fun stuff ahead here in this episode. But before we get into it, let's talk about our sponsors. Hey, dance friends and fam. Let's talk about feet. Just like teaching the proper foundational movements, you've got to have the proper footwear to be your best. I switched to a Polish Shocks dance socks and I'm never going back. Want to experience this foot utopia for yourself? Use our podcast promo code IMPACT10 in all caps in the promo box at checkout and receive 10% off your order. Oh, and something else that I love? They have a satisfaction guarantee with free returns and exchanges. Head to their website to order your new pair of dance compression socks at apollaperformance.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-A performance.com. Relative Motion is revolutionizing the way dancers understand their body in motion, and they are taking it one step further by offering free webinars and new digital teacher training academies to help transform your studio's technique training. Technique training is the catalyst for dancers to trust themselves, learn discipline, develop work ethic, and set goals that they plan to achieve. Not only are these incredible outcomes for the dancer alone, but this trickles into the full studio. Whether it's feeling creatively energetic as a teacher, having a dynamic faculty that moves as a team, seeing mind-blowing numbers in class retention, or even developing a life-giving studio culture, in Relative Motion's Radical Reach webinar, they will show you how being strategic with your technique training will bring the full program, yes, even elements that seem like they're unrelated, back into focus and produce results. Join Relative Motion for this free webinar and develop a truly radical reach. Mark your calendars and select the best date that works for your schedule, with webinars running from December 28th, 2023 through January 2nd, 2024. Register for this free webinar on their website now at therelativemotionexperience.com slash class, or click the link in our show notes. Check out all that Relative Motion has to offer to our dance world through training apparel, in-studio seminars, and digital courses by visiting their website now and using our promo code IMPACT10 in all caps for 10% off any apparel or program purchases. Our Season 5 premier sponsor, Francisco Gela Dance Works, will be hosting a unique seven-day intensive this summer in Miami, Florida. Ballet Plus is an in-depth intensive leading students towards developing a strong technical foundation in ballet, modern, and jazz with a highly refined and authentic artistic voice. Intermediate and advanced dancers ages 10 through 22 are able to attend this exciting week-long event with over 60 hours of dancing from an exceptional faculty, including Francisco Gela, Yusha Marie Sorzano, and even Making the Impact's own Courtney Ortiz. Dancers will take a variety of different classes like ballet, point, musical theater, modern dance with live percussion, Horton, contemporary, conditioning, Pilates, repertoire, and so much more. Parents will even have a chance to sit in and watch certain classes throughout the week, and all dancers are eligible for scholarships to future Francisco Gela DanceWorks events. Mark your calendars to attend Ballet Plus from June 9th through 15th, 2024, and register now for the Ballet Plus Intensive at franciscogeladance.com. So today on Making the Impact, we're changing it up a little bit, and it's just Leslie and I flying solo, but we have a lot of special guests chiming in to help us with this really fun and interesting topic, which is ridiculous expectations for competitive dance. And what do we mean by that exactly? What comes to mind immediately to me are all of those things that only dancers have to do and only dancers know. If you are not in the competitive dance world, you probably have no idea that dancers go on stage 
wearing only leotards and no tights and have to use something called butt glue to keep their costume from writing up. (laughs) I forgot about the butt glue. Yeah. The butt glue. I mean, like, no normal person, regular person outside of the dance world, if if you use the term butt glue in front of them, they would be like, what in the world are you talking about? But that is just like a common thing. We all know what that means in the dance world. So all of those ridiculous expectations that you have to do to be a competitive dancer, we are talking about them today with some really uh, fun clips that were sent in from fans around the world. Yes, this is one of my favorite kinds of episodes that we do. I love to just hear from so many different people on our audio clips and then discuss. So let's get started. Yeah, let's jump in. We have clips sent in from IDA judges, from dance parents, and so many fans. So I think the first thing we should kick things off and, and talk about is maybe that really insane schedule that you experience at a dance competition event. The expectation and length of the actual event may be quite shocking for new dance parents that step into the scene. So let's hear from our very first special guest. Hi, this is Jess Olnick from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and my crazy comp expectation is the eye-opening weekend warrior competition schedule for studio owners, teachers, parents, and dancers. You guys, the weekend is jam-packed from beginning to end with levels, age groups, award ceremonies, improv contests, and so much more. On top of that, we have quick costume changes. We're making sure that everyone is hydrating, eating, not losing dance parts, getting them all in order, and looking like a million dollars on that stage. We work so hard. I have to say, it's safe to say, Mondays feel like we have all ran a marathon together. Whether we're teachers, judges, dancers, parents, we live for this. We love our dance families and we pack it up, we regroup, and we do it again the following weekend. (laughs) Gotta love competition season. Yes, we do, Jess. That is Jess Olenek from Philadelphia-ish area. And yeah, the weekends, Courtney, why are they so long? <laughs> I mean, it is it is a crazy, like Jess said, it's a marathon weekend for these dance competitions. And obviously it depends on the length of them, but a lot of them, especially when we get into the heat of the season in March and April, they are usually always three days in length. And they sometimes start at like three o'clock on Friday. Or if you're going to a convention competition, that might, it might even start all, all day Friday at yeah. seven in the morning on Friday. So that means kids are missing school and or you're taking a half a day or you're getting in the car, you're driving. Parents have to take off of work on Friday. Like there's just so much that goes into it and the expectation and commitment to be able to make these competitions possible and have some competition. You know, we all right. we obviously want to have some competition at, at these types of events. But I mean, they are just very, very long. <laughs> It's not that the weekend, it's like the weekend, yes, the whole weekend itself is long. But then the actual days, like that's where I think the marathon feeling comes in is that, you know, even if you're not the first number of the day, you're still waking up really early. You're still preparing. You're still, you know, if you're not staying at the venue at the hotel, you're you're getting there from your home or you're getting there from the other hotel or whatever. And it's just, you're there. You're stuck. You're at this venue doing this thing all day long. It's so long. Yeah. It's a full weekend commitment. I mean, I don't think a lot of people really realize that type of sacrifice that goes into a competition. You might think, oh, well, I only have three dances 
and I'm just going to pop in and I'm going to do my dance and I'm going to go about my weekend. I'm going to head over to my friend's birthday party and I'm going right. to go to the mall on go Sunday. And it's like, <laughs> right. It's like you probably won't get to do all those things because you don't know when your dancers are going to be scheduled throughout the three-day event. Right. And then the actual word ceremony, which you want to be at because you want to see how you did, how you placed, what your adjudication is, if you won high score, if you got any special re- recognition. That sometimes doesn't happen until yeah. 10, 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday. Well, and so- it makes me wonder, like, I don't, you know, I, I have nephews who don't play travel sports. But like, when I think about other kind of kids activities that require, you know, commitments from your family, from your kids, I don't think the travel baseball team is playing 15 games in a day. But your dance kid, <laughs> your dance competition kid could have 15 routines or more. Yeah. A really committed, like, yeah. kid who's in multiple dances. You know, I don't know that any other travel sport or any any other sport really is having the, that expectation of, okay, well, you're here for the weekend and like you really you really can't go to your friend's birthday party because you're going to be doing your lyrical solo. <laughs> right. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing, but I'm sure all of our dance parents have figured out the best way to make it possible for you and your family so your dancer can live their dream up on that stage and perform for you. And it makes it all worth it when you get to see them hit the stage with their teammates or in their solo and all of that hard work is shown and they are just loving their life because performing is one of the greatest gifts and one of the Mm. greatest things about being a dancer. So So when you get to watch your dancer perform on that stage, it makes it all worth it. No matter how many tears, no matter how Mm -hmm. many, uh, how much sacrifice that you as a family had to make, it just, I'm sure it's just like the best feeling as a parent watching in the, in those moments. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's hear from our next special guest, who is another IDA judge chiming in and sharing their thoughts on the schedule and commitment expectation for competitive dancers. Hello, this is Judge Ashley from New York City. What shocked and surprised me the most about the dance competition world was how quickly dancers are expected to shift into performance mode because it's a marathon. It's not like you're performing at just one time for one evening show, you have to be on all weekend, sometimes doing 30 plus numbers. So the expectation to manage everything you need to do to get ready on stage, you know, the chaos of it all, and then just get on stage, go into performance mode and turn out these beautiful performances, it still blows my mind. And it's the norm and people do it. And that's the crazy dance competition world. That's so true. I mean, I I really don't know how we do it. Mm-hmm. To me, when when we are going back to back to back with so many dances, I mean, when I was growing up, it wasn't as expensive. Sure. I mean, it was expensive, but it wasn't as expensive. And there was a point in time when I was in at least like 15 numbers, yeah. like including my solos, but like insane amount of dances and running back and forth and being able to shift gears and mm-hmm. shift your mind to, to completely know what you're doing and get into the zone of this choreography, this right. new routine that I have to just walk out on stage. And sometimes you don't get a moment to think. Sometimes it's a quick change. So, you know, whatever the expectation is of that of the event and the schedule, it's so surprising and shocking to me when I'm sitting as a judge watching dancers just come, like, right, turning like, oh, out, like, within, <laughs> yeah, like, Five numbers later, you're back and you are killing it in a whole new style and a whole new vibe and intention and story. That is just really a really hard skill to learn and do as a dancer. Well, and I wonder, too, if we lose it as we grow up and 
and become professionals because, you know, when I was performing professionally, you know, you have your your call time at a reasonable time before your show. It's like an hour, maybe. You know, some people have a half hour call time. I don't find that to be enough time. I want to have like my full hour where I can warm up. I can do my makeup. I do my hair, get in the zone. And then you do your show and you're not in the whole show, probably, you know, <laughs> like you're in a few right, numbers. Right. And then you go home and you do it again the next day. And so, but like the kids, they just, it's, uh, it's over and over and over and over again every weekend. And so I do wonder, like, you know, as an adult, I was like, oh yeah, this is how I get into my show mode. And it, it was a calm, mm. practiced method of doing, you know, getting into the zone. But I did the competition thing too. Like, and it was busy and crazy. And I don't know, like, I wonder if, did, do we lose it? Or did we, do we just have these expectations of kids that like, it just works for them? And, you know, I don't know. No, I know what you're saying. Because it's, it is way more frantic and crazy in competition world. Yeah. Than it is when you are in like a more relaxed show setting. Even I'm sure, I mean, recitals are probably crazy Mm -hmm. too. You feel the panic and everything, but there is something about that pre-show vibe and, and getting into, into the zone. Yeah. Yeah. That is very different versus, you know, I'm even thinking about in conventions when Mm -hmm. you take class all day long, you're in your eight, like you, you woke up so early to do your hair, get your outfit on, warm up, and then you take class for five hours straight. And then competition starts within an hour after the last class finishes. You don't have time to eat. You don't have time to refresh your makeup. Maybe you need to take a cat nap before Mm -hmm. you perform. You don't get that sometimes. You know, it's just go, go, go and a little frantic and crazy sometimes at competition. So it's it is a lot to expect from young dancers. But I don't know. I mean, they always seem like I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are exhausted and right. and and, like and you, those they're things, like panicking like, backstage, and then we see them and they've pulled it together, and you know, you're yeah. like, wow, how did you? That's amazing. Yeah, I just saw you five minutes ago, and now you're back. You know, but yeah, you know, we as judges don't see what happens behind the scenes usually. So right. you know, g- kudos to all of the all the dancers out there for you know being able to pull it up and and get on stage and show us your best work, even though you've you know had a moment before where you're like, oh my god, what's happening? <laughs> right, right. And that is a true, the true test of a true professional. If you can leave all of that uh, frustration and baggage and whatever you're going through in the wings and bring your best performance out on stage. And we see it happen all the time where I wouldn't even know that all that drama or whatever was happening before you hit the stage. And that as an audience, we don't want to feel that all of those things don't bring it onto the stage with you. So when we do see those professionals that are just leaving it on the dance floor and then maybe later we find out oh this this happened right before and mm-hmm. they they you know powered through like a pro i'm like that is so impressive like go us as dancers yeah love it all right our next clip is coming from one final ida judge and let's hear what they have to say hi everyone this is ida judge miranda spada from buffalo new york one thing that i think will really shock non-dancers about our world is the amount of preparation it takes on game day for spending a little bit of stage time. There is so much preparation work that goes into making sure everything is perfect from our costuming to our warm up to our makeup to our spray tans to our hair and to everything in between. That's a that's a great, great point from IDA judge Miranda, who has joined us on many episodes of the podcast. And yes, the amount of preparation and rehearsal time and sewing time and bedazzling time and all of the things Mm -hmm. that go into getting stage ready 
is something that non-dancers probably have no idea. I mean, even training, obviously, that's whole, but that's a whole separate thing. I'm talking specifically about getting ready for the stage itself, learning the choreography, getting the choreography cleaned, making sure your costume fits properly, making sure you have all of the extra safety pins and butt glue and all the things. I mean, there's a lot of that goes into getting stage ready. Right. Well, and I think that's that brings up kind of an interesting point of it makes sense that a lot of studios do a lot of competitions because otherwise, if you only do one or two, you've Mm. spent all this time preparing these numbers for, you know, if your jazz dance is three minutes long. okay. well, if you do that twice and then at recital, you've been spending all this time for nine minutes. Like, really? So I can kind of see why people do a ton of competitions. You know, yes, you're spending more money to do that, but you're also getting more experiences, you know, refining that choreography and getting more feedback and being able to perform it more. So I can kind of see it. Yeah, I I think about that all the time, too. It's just like the amount of time that goes into that prep. And and is it is the outcome, you know, the final product Mm -hmm. and the final performance time enough for the amount of the length of time you put into getting this piece ready for the stage? Some people start in July, August, learning choreography. And that means- And the amount of money that you might be spending on the choreography itself. So, you know, the your your teacher at your studio, you know, may or may not get a choreography fee. I would venture to say probably not. They're just getting paid. Whereas if you're bringing an outside choreographer in, you know, that's that's some money when you're Mm -hmm. when you're doing that. So you've paid so much money for this piece of choreography. And, you know, I think I think it's it's just an interesting thing to think about when you're considering how how often you're going to get to perform this. Right. Hey, teachers and studios, get ready to experience Relative Motion's Total Technique Academy, the ultimate resource to unlock incredible technique results in your dancers while feeling renewed creativity in designing a results-driven season unlike any before. The Relative Motion Total Technique Academy program will help your studio's faculty transform into a powerful, streamlined team where they will meet unbelievable goals and redefine your program's vision with cutting-edge training. In just 90 days, your dancers will experience a technical transformation by helping your dancers tap into their mind-body connection, eliminating self-doubt, and accessing the freedom and strength in their movement. Mark your calendars for the official launch of the Total Technique Academy on January 8th, 2024. Registration for this digital teacher training course will be open from December 28, 2023 until January 7, 2024. By joining the training, you and your faculty will receive 12 weeks of dance magic with one module released each week and lifetime access to the content. You can work through the program at your own pace, giving you all the flexibility you need to shine. Plus, Get ready to hit the dance floor with one live session each week throughout the 12-week program. If you want to learn about Relative Motion's Total Technique Academy before officially registering, don't miss out on their free webinar scheduled for the end of December. Visit their website at therelativemotionexperience.com technique or click the link in our show notes to register now. And Miranda has a few more things to say about exactly that. One of the things that never ceases to amaze me about the competitive dance world today is the length and the expense at which parents will pay for their dancers' costumes and choreography. You always think you heard the most incredibly high number, and then you hear one that's even higher, and it just continues to boggle my mind. 
Yep. Yes, the mind-bogglingness <laughs> uh, of dance competition life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so true. The amount of money that people pay for choreography is insane to me. I mean, yeah. I will say, though, I will say that being a choreographer as a choreographer and as a guest choreographer, it is an extremely hard job. I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. It is a very hard job. You think that you just come in and you do a little ditty and that's a wrap and you get a huge chunk of change and whatever you go about your life. So for some people, sure. I think that choreography comes more naturally to some and other people put blood, sweat and tears into the creation of it. So and again, you're paying for experience. You're paying for sometimes someone's reputation and, you know, knownness in the industry. But it it does take a lot of preparation and time and uh, planning and research and homework and then also and going then, back sometimes you know maybe not in person but watching a video giving feedback later mm-hmm. you know doing doing more than it. just the one day of choreography it's the pre-planning too you know court i know yes. you have so much you do so much pre-planning uh before your choreography sessions because it's hard to just go in there and create on the spot with people you don't know you at least have yeah. to have some kind of framework for what you're what you're giving them yeah, I think that's really why sometimes it is so expensive to have a guest choreographer come in uh, because they really, it, it's a hard skill to be able to create magic on dancers you've never really worked with or you don't get to work in, with in on the regular. You know, <laughs> every hours. every studio can be like, oh, my dancers are advanced and oh, here's a video of, of my dancer so you can see. But like, I'm seeing a polished, perfected mm-hmm. routine that you're sending me. Right. How do they work in rehearsal? Are Do they pick up choreography quickly? Are they focused? What are the skills that they can show me on the spot if I'm quote unquote auditioning them? Like how are, I mean, there's so many additional things that go into it that you don't really, you might not think about as a parent, as a teacher when you bring in a guest choreographer. So I do think that, you know, the cost is expensive, but at the same time, hopefully the final product is worth it and you introduce your students to new material and a new way of learning and new movement quality. And maybe it's something that was created that you as a choreographer would have never came up with. And it's so out there and different for your studio and a great experience for your dancers. But I will say there are some choreographers out there who are charging astronomical amounts of money to come in and set a three minute dance. And then occasionally you find out that that choreography has already been set on someone else, Mm, you know, like that happens too, unfortunately. And, you know, I think just do your research. Mm. People who are looking to bring in guest choreographers and guest choreographers, don't be shady. Create something new. I know. (laughs) If you're going to be charging that much money for it. Please create something new. It is not. Yeah, exactly. If if we could go on a whole tangent. (laughs) I mean, we have. There are episodes where we have strict. It's true. We have talked about this. So. I think that the thing to remember for all of the dance parents out there and for the studios is make sure, like you said, do your research. If if the rate feels too insane, then try to negotiate it because that's po- that's an option too. Don't feel like that's that's the only rate that you have to accept is what they offer you. And don't feel like that you have to spend an astronomical amount of money to quote unquote win a dance. There's a lot of great choreographers out there who aren't going to charge half as much and create something equally as beautiful. So make sure that you really do your research. And that being said, Miranda hinted at 
also the cost and expense of costumes. So let's jump into some costume uh, expectations. Here we go. Hey, guys. I'm a dance mom from Florida. And something that I didn't realize until just recently is how much money people are spending on their solo costumes or even group costumes. But I see it more so with the solo costumes. So I've been a dance parent for 12 or so years, but just recently joined all the dance Facebook groups. And I'm seeing that people are buying costumes for like five or six hundred dollars. And it's going to be worn a handful of times. And these are for six and seven year olds, some of them. So I just don't understand why they feel it's necessary to spend that much money or understand how they have any money left over after all of the other dance fees that we pay. So yeah, that was just something that was shocking to me when I spend maybe $100 on a costume. Yes, costume fees and the cost of costumes is wild and crazy, y'all. And I want to give a shout out to our very first parent submission in Yay. our clips. So hooray for that. Thank you for sending that in and being a Making the Impact fan. But yes, you are not wrong, dance parent. The cost is insane. <laughs> and what people will pay is crazy. <laughs> oh my God. And like she said, for a six or seven year old, I'm thinking I didn't go to prom. Okay. I was the person who just didn't care. But prom dresses are not even $600. Like right. you can probably find a really nice prom dress for not $600. And you're and we're oh, yeah. talking about a, a piece of clothing. I don't even know sometimes if you can call these lovely, very beautifully made, of course, costumes, clothing, because it's probably a, a two pieces of fabric with a whole lot of rhinestones and an applique. Mm-hmm. And maybe some elastic if you're lucky. Like $600. I don't, I, I don't have $600. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I, I don't want to discredit any of the custom costume designers out there because I will say that I have seen some exceptional work on the competition stage. Costumes that absolutely blow my mind. And I'm not even just talking about like the amount of rhinestones. I'm talking about the beading and the appliques and the mesh paneling and, and, and fitting the body properly and unique designs. Like the, y'all are artists and I understand why some of these costumes cost what they cost. However, it, do you need? an expensive costume like that to succeed on the competition stage. I'm going to say no. And also, I just want to let everybody out there, sometimes when I see these amazing costumes hit the stage, which again, I am so here for, I love a fierce costume. I'm like sometimes jealous because when you become right. a professional dancer, there I, I've never worn a costume at like at that caliber unless it was like no. br- a Broadway show when, and the costume was handed down through multiple multiple right. people but like well, and it depends on the style of the show too like you know in right. anything goes you're wearing tap shorts and a cute top like it probably if came from macy's you know like if you're in radio city for example uh, yes that's gonna have some some crystals and some you know beauty beauty to it but like for a lot of professional shows you know courtney i think our costumes from the vision of the seas 1000 years ago are the same costumes they're still using now right. on that show. and like I will say they probably spent a nice amount of money on the original design right. of those costumes so they would last over time. But that's the that's right. like my point I'm trying to get across is yeah. like you are spending the same amount of money as professional shows are to create pieces of costumes that are supposed to last for years. And mm-hmm. you're paying the same amount of money for your dancer to grow out of it in one year and wear it once. 
So right. that's insane to me. Like if you have that type of fun, the, the type of funds to support that. And yes, we know dance is expensive in general, but great. Good for you. But do you need to do, spend that kind of money to be successful? No, you do not. Like you can blow me away with your ex- amazing dancing and wear a black leotard and with nothing on it. And if you're dancing, is beautiful. I will, you know, your your costume score isn't going to change based on how many rhinestones you have and how much money you spend right. on your costume. The one thing I would spend some money on is something custom that fits your body properly because I mean, we all have seen the lack of options in the books. We've seen the lack of sizing and inclusive sizing in the books. And, you know, I know for for me for years, like I could not find even sometimes leotards mm. that would accommodate the undergarments I needed to wear. Mm-hmm. And even on the, you know, in professional shows, it was like they had to constantly alter stuff for me because my body type wasn't just your standard, you know, size small, size medium, whatever. And so I will say that, you know, like you said, Courtney, sometimes you see a custom costume that fits somebody like a glove and you're like, oh, I see why you paid that money. Mm-hmm. Because that never would have happened had you got it from a book. So Yeah. yeah. And that is a, a really great point that sometimes you might want to invest a little bit more in the costume so your dancer feels confident and comfortable. And I, I will say, like, I don't think we need to go as high as $600, $700, $800 on a costume. That's insane. But, like, if you do want to go custom, I think the perk in that is it will fit you properly. It is designed mm-hmm. for you. It is custom for you. And you know that you're going to be the only dancer wearing that costume, which is also another really great feeling in, in solo world if you want to sure. stand out and be memorable. But yeah, I the costumes, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear, let's hear some more costume talk. <laughs> hey, this is IDA Judge Maddie from Tampa, Florida. And one of the things that I absolutely love is a good rhinestone. I am never going to be mad about a beautiful rhinestone costume. However, I think that the expectations have gotten a little bit out of hand. All dancers expect to have their costumes rhinestoned by their moms or the studio or whomever is responsible, and it just isn't necessary. Like I said, I'm not going to ever be mad about it, but you don't need it to win. In fact, it's probably not going to affect your score that much. The only thing about your costume that would affect your score is if your costume is completely inappropriate or really doesn't match your dance. So with that said, maybe even consider that in your hip hop routine or your tap routine, you don't even need the rhinestones. Mm. Ooh, rhinestone talk from Maddie Kurtz. <laughs> Maddie sounds very vehement about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love rhinestones. Maddie loves a lyrical, a, a Celine Dion Ooh. lyrical, which must mm-hmm. be dripping in rhinestones. Mm-hmm. So we know she does love them. <laughs> yeah, and I- I'm, I'm. Like, it's pretty much exactly what I just said. I am here for a rhinestone. I love a rhinestone. Do you, I mean, the amount of money even just rhinestones are, like, you might have already gotten, mm. created a custom right. costume that cost X amount of dollars, and now you're going to add another $200 worth of rhinestones onto it, and then also the time spent putting those rhinestones onto the costume. Who's doing that? Is Your dance mm-hmm. teacher's probably not doing it. Is mom just taking on a new project while she's sitting in the lobby at the dance studio to bedazzle your costume? I mean, and then... Again, like it's going to look gorgeous and you're going to feel special and love it. But is the financial, you know, cost worth it in the end? Right. Agreed. I mean, yeah, I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody dislikes the feeling of wearing rhinestones. Like it, it oh, yeah. like you're right. It feels really special and you feel very pretty and shiny. And like, of course, they're, they're there to make you feel good and look good. 
But yeah, I just I can't get over the cost aspect of it, especially like you like you can't take them off. Mm-hmm. You're going to ruin your costume if you take them off to reuse them. So yeah, that's true. You know, it's it's they're not very what do you call it like sustainable? Yeah, <laughs> if you're talking about sustainable sustainability and dance, not rhinestones. <laughs> and I will say that I I think what's really awesome about how the dance world has evolved when it comes to sustainability is the resale groups of yes, that is dance a very costumes. real thing. I love, love, love that. I mean, there are so many times where I'm sure so many of us still have some of our costumes that we had uh, from the comp years way back when. I My parents have them down in the basement and they're just hanging up on a shelf and, uh, you know, serving no purpose. And some of them are even like dry rotted at this point where it's like, oh, yeah, they, the elastic is shot. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> and it's like it could have let someone use this because you spend so much money it's a pretty costume it was designed the designer put so much time into it it's bedazzled all of that you could have five years down the road a new little mini's coming up and it's exactly your size and boom that costume fits their dance perfectly i mean i think we can definitely think about that even creating some type of uh recycled costume in within your studio of dancers who had solos before and want to recycle down and then also all the resale groups it's just such a great idea and it's so smart to get custom for discounted so sure you're still spending a a little bit more money than a hundred dollars most likely you never know you might get a deal but i love that that exists because then you can still get all of the glitz and the glam that you're looking for but not spend like a mortgage payment on a (laughs) on a costume <laughs> legit yes <laughs> all right and let's hear from another dance parent in regards to costuming for competition this is jenny uh, i'm from baton rouge louisiana uh, and i'm a parent of two competitive dancers uh probably one of the biggest i guess it was my expectation that the kids would have on clothes <laughs> So it was a little bit, uh, blew my mind, um, at the lack of clothing that I saw on stage at competitions. Um, in fact, so much so that my husband didn't come <laughs> to, to the competitions because I was kind of worried he'd make them stop. So that's mine. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my goodness. That's Jenny. You just cracked us up. <laughs> Jenny, you are not wrong. That is true. The. Right. I literally started off the episode saying how dancers are expected to go on stage wearing less, sometimes l- like less than a, a bikini, depending. Yeah. I mean, bikini, in front of people. Yes. On stage, With under lights, lights <laughs> like doing For leg stretches. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's just like, it really is. Yeah. It's absolutely mind blowing that. And I will say again that, that this is a new thing. For competition dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like... The no tights. Yeah. the lack of clothing. The la- Yeah. I, I... There is no way in the world growing up that I would go to a convention class in a two-piece. Anything. Right. Oh, Ever. no, no, no. Never. Ever. Like, and I mean, there were definitely some, like, cutouts and two-piece costumes back in the 90s and the 80s. I mean, there's been a two-piece oh, yeah. costume since people were on stage. Like, that's, all, that's definitely a thing. But the difference is the lack of amount of fabric... Like the right. it keeps getting less and less, and right. then the no tights. Like that is the evolution of the past fifteen years. I think right. on mass, like you would see it here and there back when we were competing, no tights or like an itsy bitsy top, and you're like, oh, oh, that's like, oh no. But now it's just sort of understood, right? I don't know. Understood's not the right word. It's and not even expected. It's just it. It is. Yeah. It just is. It's just accepted. <laughs> that's just. I don't understand it, 
part <laughs> of the gig, I guess, these days is yeah. you have to know that you're going to be wearing possibly very little amount of clothing. The weird thing for me is just looking back, I mean, I have two thoughts. First thought is I find it odd that dancers don't necessarily take class without tights on or pants on, but then feel like it's appropriate and acceptable and, and, and their comfort, they're comfortable enough to go on stage without pants on and without tights on and in just a leotard. I'm like, if you don't train that way, why do you think stage isn't like, is going to yeah. make you feel any better? It's actually going to heighten it. It's, you know, like we said, under the lights, you have an audience now, like, there's so many more factors that things could go wrong or slip out or whatever that well, and it still like always blows my mind because I'm thinking of like every professional job, ones that I've done and not done, you have on tights. Yeah. Maybe you have on fishnets, which sometimes give the gives the illusion that you don't have on tights. Yeah. But like Unless you're dancing like you contemporary. Said, okay, yeah, I am I'm thinking more of like, you yeah, know, the, the Rockettes, a showgirl job, like the you know, even Vegas showgirls have on tights. Yeah. Even the women at the Moulin Rouge have on tights. Like mm-hmm. it's just it is a very strange, like, I wonder who uh, wonder started, where it started the trend. wonder yeah. who decided that was a thing at competition dance. I think once the, and and yes, in the theatrical world, you're going to always have a tight on. In the concert contemporary world, you probably right. won't have a tight on unless you're doing ballet, um, contemporary right. ballet or a ballet company. Most of the time you are going to have on a bare leg. So I sure, do, you because know. Because you're dancing barefoot. Right, exactly. With no shoes on, none. Not one, just two. Just yes. one, none. <laughs> and like very rarely, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You could be in a brief and you could be in, you know, like a high cut leg and and without any tights on in the professional world. Like that does exist, but it's across the board in every genre at dance competitions. You see it at lyrical, mm-hmm. you see it in contemporary, you see it in jazz, you see it in musical theater, you see it in everything. And it's like, can't we put on a pant? Can't we put on something? Like there's no way you couldn't pay me enough money as a child who is growing, going through puberty, your body's changing, you know, it's just like awkward and weird. And then you're going to put on a like a little tiny bikini and go out on stage like no way. Even convention classes, like kids are wearing less and less clothes. I'm like, put some warm ups on. Stop worrying about always getting seen. Take class for class like you. But it is funny because then you see it's like a shift. The moment you turn into teens, then they want to wear nothing but like baggy clothes baggy and like oversized everything. Yeah. everything. Yeah. For for class it, too. For class. Yeah. Which yeah. great. I'm here for it. That's fine. Stay wear warm. that in class. If <laughs> yeah, stay warm. If that's what makes you dance your best, then wear it. I am here for it. But yeah, I, I don't I don't love that either. And I can see how a dad or someone's husband might be like, absolutely not. My child is not not doing that. Yeah. And and just maybe feel uncomfortable with, with every child around you. Yes. You know, wearing those, that kind of clothing and running around like it's nothing. Right. Well, and that it always kind of blows my mind too. Like when we would be, you know, at dance class growing up, we had um, like a little convenience store that was just down the the shopping center. And we were, we, you started to be allowed to go once you were like in middle school, you could walk down there and get a drink or whatever, but you had to put on something over your dance clothes. And back in the nineties, we were wearing tights and a leotard and some shorts. Like that was the thing you were wearing, but you had to put a shirt on over it. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at, I'm looking at kids just like in the parking lot, like mm-hmm. here I am in my basically bathing suit in my Crocs. In all seasons. Like <laughs> and then walking into the grocery store, you're like, clothing, put some yes. clothing on. Yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. So yeah, I feel you, Jenny. I, I don't know. 
Yeah. And another uh, crazy expectation is makeup for competitive dancers. So let's Let's hear from our next dance parent. I think it's ridiculous that teeny tiny humans as young as four or five are expected to have a full face of makeup and especially false eyelashes for competitions. Yep. Tell it like it is, ma'am. She yep. just she just said it. <laughs> and and yeah, that is that is the expectation. I and you know, four or five false eyelashes, that's a little young. Yeah, that's those are tiny eyes too. Like yeah. you'd have to cut those lashes in half. <laughs> yeah, there's no I mean, lashes don't even fit me. So I right. I can't imagine <laughs> they they probably don't even make eyelashes. <laughs> I mean, hey, you save money, you cut them in half and you can use them there two more times. But yeah, I I I agree uh, in in a way. And I will and I will say that when it comes to eyelashes in particular, I don't necessarily think that dancers eight and under need to have eyelashes on. Number one, it's gonna be impossible to get them on that child. And number two, right. it's mascara will work equally as fine for stage. But I do think that after eight, eight and older, I think that you should start putting fake eyelashes on and why? is because it really enhances your eyes for stage. It really makes your eyes pop for stage when you are washed out under those stage lights. I mean, you really don't, you have, for people that have never been on a stage, like dance parents who have never actually been on a stage before, you might not feel that when you're on the stage, but when you're the viewer watching, if you don't have the right makeup on and if you want your face to stand out and you want your performance to be enhanced and show your expression, then adding the fake eyelashes and even the blush and the red lipstick, I mean, it really does help make that possible. Yeah. And I mean, especially for not only adults, young adults, teenagers, but for your for your children, you know, like you said, age eight and up, if you're a blonde or a redhead or somebody with very light features, mascara is not going to cut it. It doesn't cut it for me. I, I on stage, I have to have some lashes and I you have to look a little garish in person to be on a stage and look normal. Because if you have nothing on or if you have very little, like very light makeup, you're not going to look like you've put any effort Mm. into it. And you're going to get on stage and you're going to be possibly next to, you know, Sally over here, whose mother like went full out with feeling. And Sally looks great on stage. She might look a little little crazy in person. We all (laughs) all know how that is. Like it's just stage makeup. You look a little crazy. But yeah, I think you really need it, especially like I said, for the the light, the lighter, fair, fair skinned, fair, um, complected folks because I just I fade into the background without some lashes (laughs) right hey parents do you have a tiny dancer between the ages of 7 to 10 are you looking for a thrilling new way to level up your dancers technique and training well look no further than Francisco Gala Dance Works Mini Mania the ultimate dance intensive for young dancers Mini Mania provides top-notch training in the technical and artistic aspects of dance from experienced professional educators. Your dancer will train in a variety of classes, including ballet, jazz, hip-hop, musicality, dance history, modern dance foundations, and so much more. And parents, get ready to join in on the fun with enlightening seminars and class observation opportunities where you'll get to cheer on your tiny dancers as they flourish in class. Francisco Gala Danceworks is hosting two Mini Mania intensives in 2024. Take your pick from Mini Mania West in Los Angeles, California from March 1st through the 3rd, 2024, or Mini Mania East in Miami, Florida from May 31st through June 2nd, 2024. Class sizes are kept small to give personalized attention with only 35 dancers per class. 
all dancers must audition to be considered, so don't miss out. Head on over to franciscogaladance.com today to learn more. Thank you to Francisco Gala Dance Works for being our Season 5 premiere sponsor. Yeah, and it is important for uh, especially the parents who are new to this to understand the difference between how to do your makeup for stage versus how to do your makeup in life. So um, right. that's a very know, big difference. They are very, not the same. I'm sure there's YouTubes out there. I'm sure there's TikToks out there. And like there have there have been times where I see dancers that actually have too much makeup on for for being like tiny, tiny little ones where mom just went in overdrive with the like bright pink blush just like packing it on no blending (laughs) yeah and it's just like the eyeliner is like all the way across their face and it's just you know i you have to find the perfect balance of the right amount of stage makeup to not overdo it but you know it's there for a purpose it's there to make you stage ready and as and even for our male identifying dancers, making sure we have some powder mm-hmm. on, you Just can a add some, something. a little bit of eyeliner if you want to have a little pop of your eyelash, tiny bit of mascara, maybe fill the yeah. brows in a little bit. Fill like, the brows in. I, mean, I learned too late to fill the brows in. You got to fill the brows <laughs> in. The brows frame the face, people. <laughs> yes, yes. So I know it is definitely a little weird and might feel wrong but to have the makeup on and I, I don't necessarily need to see full full blown makeup in convention. I don't need that. I, I think it feels a little awkward and a lot. I understand if you have to go straight into competition and you don't have time to do your makeup in between convention classes and competition. But if you're just taking class, you don't feel like you need a full beat on because it actually, like you said, it is a little weird when you're not on stage seeing a dancer, a young dancer in a full beat face. <laughs> Well, and for for parents of littles who are concerned about the makeup thing, it's it's a special occasion. Like, you know, we all do different things when it's a special occasion. We do our hair a little better. We write we we have a fancy dress when we go to mm. a fancy party. You know, this is just a special occasion. We don't wear makeup like this all the time. Mommy doesn't wear makeup like this. Your big sister doesn't wear makeup like this all the time. Like, you can you can have it be a normal thing to put on makeup in a a stage way. But frame it as this is a special thing you're performing. And then when right. we get home, we're taking it off. Right. And we don't do this every day. Like, right. it's, it doesn't have to be this big, you know, debacle of, oh, gosh, she's going to look like this every day. No, she's not. <laughs> That's a great point. Great, great point. And we have one more makeup chime in from IDA judge Ashley. She's back. Round two. Hello, this is Judge Ashley from New York City. And I think one of the craziest things about dance competitions is seeing all of these young dancers, especially preteen dancers in their full makeup, very mature costumes, doing very mature adult choreography that we all have just become accustomed to seeing. But I think of like a school teacher or someone just from the general public seeing someone they know in their full competition makeup and costume doing this movement. I think it's just very, very bizarre. And to us, it's the norm. We see it every weekend. We're used to it. But show anyone from the outside world and they would just think it's nuts. <laughs> this makes me think of different different dance world, but sort of similar, the Irish competitive dance world. Uh-huh. Those girls have on this huge wig. They have mm. on all this makeup. They have these you know, probably just like we were talking earlier about six, $700 costumes. Mm-hmm. Those costumes are bedazzled within an inch of their life and mm-hmm. they're really short and they have no tights on. Like, 
I I'm imagining like my elementary school teacher came to my recitals a few times and I I just wonder what they thought. <laughs> yeah, I I know I know what you mean. I mean, I will say that like with that the Irish dancing to me feels less sexualized than a lot of oh, the dancing. Oh, it's definitely less sexualized that we see at competition. But it's also it's also just as bizarre though. It is. Cuz they typically have on wigs and Right. You know, it's it's like a whole thing. Right. So, like, just the bizarreness of it is what I'm commenting on. But the maturity factor, that's, you know, our world for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm really glad that actually brought that up because as we've already discussed, it is crazy to see kids in stage makeup and see kids wearing practically nothing. But then you add that next layer of mature right. choreography on top of it. And it just be- that's when it becomes inappropriate. And mm-hmm. and yes, it's already it's already weird and awkward that we're already there. We're already doing the crazy makeup and we're already doing the minimal costume. But why do we have to also then add mature movement to just take it right. to a whole nother level of inappropriateness? It's always funny to me when we're sitting at the judges table and, you know, the judges table is typically slightly under the stage. It's not we're not sitting at stage level. And so we're looking up. So everybody looks taller than they are. Then you add the 10-year-old with the makeup. Then you add her costume, which is very revealing. Then you add her doing a lyrical solo about her broken heart and her tragedy of the lost love. And then you see this child at awards. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. you're, not, you're not the same person who did that dance to I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston. Right. You can't, you can't be, but it's her because she's taken her makeup off. She has on her sweatpants. And she's got her teddy bear and her Crocs are on. And she's 10 again. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very... Um, it is a mind-boggling thing to remember that these these children transform into these entities on stage sometimes that are like, like you said, the outside world just has no idea and are, is so shocked. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great point, too, because even just the way that dancers are moving on stage, not even about being mm. inappropriate or sexual, even just right. the way they carry themselves and walk out on stage, some of these very, very advanced dancers who are only 10 right. and 11. They are beyond their years in so many ways of just understanding how to carry their themselves, their body, the way they transition and move through things, the mo- the style of movement and their movement quality. That's just another, you know, thing that will make you as an audience think, wow, I can't believe they're they're not 10. There's no way they're only mm-hmm. 10. It feels very more mature. So I know a lot of people all, are always saying, like, let's keep kids kids and and all of the things. And I think there's a balance. I think that, you know, it's okay if, if your dancer is that advanced where their movement quality right. is advanced. I think that's right and mature. I think that's different yeah. than trying to put kids into like movement that feels a little bit too sexualized and mature. Right. There's, it's a fine line of like, you can be a mature 10 year old. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's right. not, that doesn't have to be an inappropriate thing. You know, it's, there's, there is a line. And I think I, we've all seen, like I said, those those ten year olds that you're like, oh, it's impossible. You're just your your movement quality is so mature and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I wasn't that ten year old. I looked ten. <laughs> I looked ten, and I also just received a ton. Actually, we probably looked eight. Yeah, let's be real. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my <were> little <laughs> my mom just went through home videos and sent me all these crazy improv oh videos God. of Courtney dancing in the living room, which uh, there's I guess hours and hours of, and, and that was when I was ten. Listener, we'll share one one day. I will because... share one in the Facebook group. You have to be in the community only, and it must oh not God. it must not leave the group. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a few of them. They are they're crazy golden. But I was dancing like I was ten, 
Even though I was dancing yeah, to Greece, yeah. I was dancing Jeez. like I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even, I'm dying inside thinking about some of your dance moves. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> In your it's so tragic. Or your bedroom. It's so oh fun to relive. All right, we have some more clips coming in, and we have another dance parent who is chiming in. Let's see what they have to say. The most, the craziest expectations, I think, the industry of dance competition has from the parents. I am a parent. Well, definitely the money expectations of maybe they're thinking that we are super rich, that we can pay almost $200 for a two-minute and 45-second solo. But also the expectations of having three to four day long competitions and expecting kids to miss school when we're adults and, and we should be keeping, you know, the norm, maybe Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, um, competitions. If not, maybe just Saturday and Sunday. I think those are the two big ones for me. One thing that is crazy, I think to non-dancers or anybody and that's not in the competitive dance world is how much money we pay for this. My name's Summer Aiello. My daughter Paige is a competitive dancer, has been dancing since she was six years old, and she's 14 now. And I honestly, my husband and I sat and added up how much money we think we've spent over these years. (laughs) And it blew our minds. But we see it as an investment in her future. And so when comes time to pay that money, it's, it's a little bit of a stinger, but we do it. Um, gladly because it brings her so much joy. So yeah, so that's one thing. I'm sure other parents will say this as well too. We're crazy, but we do it. Thanks. It's so much money. Competitive dance is so expensive and it's gotten even more expensive in the past 10 years. I don't think there's a way to do it without it being expensive. I mean, yeah. I don't know. But I think that there's ways I know what you to mean. To do it well, I guess. Yeah. I, the What comes to mind for me when it comes to the expense is I don't feel like that. I don't know. It's And it's kind of counter. It's saying something against what we said earlier about how you're putting all this time and all this energy mm-hmm. into just a three minute dance. And you might only get to go to a comp a few times and perform that just a handful of times. But at the same time. I think that the money would be better spent on training versus the competitions. And I'm saying right. that, and that sounds like, you know, we have a dance competition podcast over here and I'm a, I'm a dance competition judge and I love dance competitions. But I think there's a nice way to make it work for everyone financially. If it has gotten so extremely expensive that it's becoming not possible for families to be able to, to participate. And it's like, I think studios have to sit down and say, okay, we want to go to six comps, but our parents can't afford it. Maybe we go to three comps instead. And does that mean that you do more dances instead? Or does that mean that maybe we add in a performance opportunity that's not as expensive? Right. You know, I think there's ways to still get the training, get the experience, but do, do dancers need to go to six, seven, eight competitions a season? I don't think that you need to because that's where it's getting really, really expensive. And it's already expensive, you know, so then adding more is making it 10 times more expensive. Right. And like the first dance parent was talking about the expectation of kids having to miss school right. on the Friday. If the event is is big enough that it needs to start on a Friday, that's that's where I really can't mm-hmm. get behind it. Yep. You know, I'm all for like businesses making money, studios making money, everybody having a great time. 
everybody having a, a, a good amount of actual competition at the competition. And that's usually the reason an event is going to start early on a school day is because there's so many studios. You know, you need right. to be able to accommodate everybody. If you couldn't accommodate everybody, it may end up just being the two big studios who are bringing the most numbers. So I can understand all of that. But like, yeah, I mean, if you're having to take off school, you're having to take off work, you're having to mm-hmm. call in sick, you know, whatever it is to get your kid there on a Friday, plus the hotel, plus the everything else you have to do that weekend. I don't I don't love that. And I think that is, you know, I, I think that is a hard expectation to put on 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 people. I, I completely agree. I think that that has personally that is one downfall of the industry that's gotten a little out of hand. And it was slightly introduced when I was younger, where they started creeping up to like half day Fridays and you'd you'd right. start at like one or two. But like, no matter what, if competition starting at one or two, that means you're taking off of school on Friday. Yeah, it doesn't you're matter. You're not going for three hours, no, two hours. <laughs> you're not going. And then, you know, that type of sacrifice that parents have to be on board with to support potentially a hobby this is just right. a hobby right now for these kids. This could be a career. Like Summer said, it might be an investment for their future. You might think your kid will go on to do this for a living, but they might not. So this is an extremely expensive hobby that you're also sacrificing their education, their school education for. I think that is another big, big thing for me. And I agree. I I I, I work for dance conventions and we start on Friday. You know, that's just what, what the norm is. But I think there's a, there can be, and when it comes to the money expectation, I think there can be that sacrifice once or twice a season, maybe once at the top of the new year and maybe one towards the end. But to expect parents to be okay with pulling their kids out of school every Friday, like once a Friday uh, every month. Yeah. To do a competition dance? Then you're going to get some pushback from the school, I would assume. Right. (laughs) So I think that's a that's a really, really valid point. And I do I wish there was a better way for the conventions to be able to do that. I mean, a lot of conventions, there's some that start on Thursdays and people have said absolutely not, you know, which good. I'm glad. But I, I, I don't think there's a way for conventions to have the amount of competition that they want to have. Unless they did Sunday night convention or competition, which no one wants to do. So instead, they put it on Friday. Well, and it's like you just I I think I've said this before on the podcast and just in my general life, you can't be everything to everyone. So if you're an event that boasts that we have competition and convention, if you're a convention competition, yes, you can do that. But, you know, you have to you kind of have to pick what's more important, because if you start trying to, to serve these people who want more competition then the people who want more convention aren't going to come because they don't want your Thursday mm-hmm. night event. Mm-hmm. They want a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like, you can't do it all. And I think there's just got to be, there's definitely events out there that have limited, you know, they're, they're not. They've committed to not starting on a Friday before school is out. Like, they, they've said that. That's in their jargon. That's in their advertising. You know, so I think to seek out events that have timing that you like studio owners, like that's what you got to do. Otherwise, you are at the mercy of what the competition or the convention is saying, you know, what what they value. Do they value money, business? Or do they value like what the customers actually want? Hard to say. Yeah. And then going back onto the money thing, like I was saying before, I do, I really do think that there's a way to make it be a competitive dancer without going into debt in your family to yeah. do it. Yeah. You know, like this, I mean, Training is already expensive and all the things that we already talked about, costumes are already expensive. 
But then you have to add on the entry fees of the competition. And yes, you're getting critiques and yes, you're getting ranked and you might win a trophy. But besides that, it's a performance opportunity. If you, I mean, you're going to grow as a dancer on that stage, but I think there's other ways that you can perform for less money. So if if you want to be a competitive dancer, I think like a happy, perfect place is three competitions, maybe Mm -hmm. a convention or lump a convention into that. Do we need to go to nationals? I'm going to say probably not, to be honest. Take your family vacation. Yeah, make it all like alternate it. Like there are ways for you as a studio to be able to make this financially affordable for all of your parents. And also maybe we limit how many dances we bring. You know, does does every kid need a solo? Does everybody need to be in 10 plus dances? I'm going to say no. Maybe the studio needs to condense the amount of dances that they're cranking out because it's a business as well for them. So they're making money on every dance that they're putting out there. The competition's making money for every dance that's getting entered into. And the parents are the ones that are like, I cannot afford another costume fee, another rehearsal, another competition, another hotel. I mean, it really adds up. And again, the hard part for me is that I don't know that there's a, I mean, I know travel sports are expensive and there's a lot of other like activities that kids do that are that are pricey but this one feels like one of the most expensive out oh, there oh i would assume so i mean i'd i'd love to get some stats i'm sure we have some listeners who have maybe travel ball kids and is more yeah gymnastics I mean, maybe i don't think school band is this expensive chorus like yeah you're going on your your regional competition or your you know uh, solo and ensemble but like i don't i don't think that's those arts kind of things are this expensive yeah for sure so just making sure that uh, we talk to your studio if there's fundraising opportunities and things like that. If you feel like that the expectation for the amount of event or the amount of pressure to be in an X amount of dances is too overwhelming, you know, do your research, y'all, because I'm sure you can find find somewhere that's going to be able to work for you and your family's budget. And that's really important. Let's hear from one more dance parent when it comes to money expectations in competition dance. Hi, my name is Stephanie Torres. I am a dance mom to three amazing girls. Uh, They all attend Core Dance in Tualatin, Oregon. Huge shout out to our amazing studio. Uh, One of the things that I find kind of ridiculous that seems like an expectation when you first get into dance, especially competitive dance, is the amount of things that you need or supposedly need, like dancewear and bags and all those type of things, when in reality, you don't actually need them to stand out in the crowd. I was a mom who fell into that trap, bought all these things. My oldest daughter grew out of it all, and then she still stood out even with um, just wearing shorts and a t-shirt or a regular plain leotard. So it's not really necessary, but it's one of those expectations you think that you need when you first start out, especially. I don't do that for my younger two now because I I lived and I learned. Another thing is the huge giant dance bags. I just, I don't get the need, especially if you have one costume and makeup, you can just fit that in a bag. Obviously to each their own, but it's an expectation that just isn't, isn't needed. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) I think that there's like for for a lot of dance parents, I think that they just want to fit in and do what's yeah. right. And they see all these big, huge dance right. bags in the dressing room and they're like, wait, am I supposed to have one of those to be a quote unquote dance mom and and for my dancer? 
you know, you know, type right. of thing. So I can see the the pressure. <laughs> well, and also just pressure from the kids of like, well, Sally has this thing and I need it. Right. Like, she has this giant dream double that costs four hundred dollars <gasps> and I need it. And you're like, do you? And I mean, the dream duffel thing, like that, whoever came up with the dream duffel, you made some money, ma'am, because I'm sure it was a dance mom who figured it out. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a smart idea. I think they're extremely huge. I mean, I've seen them, them go into the back trunk of a car and it takes up the entire takes up the whole trunk. trunk. <laughs> like you can't really fit many other things in there. But I'm hoping that everything you need fits in the dream duffel. And it's just like a one stop shop for your makeup and your clothing rack and all of your costumes and your shoes and the accessories. Like, I hope that everything fits, you know, so if people want a giant suitcase with wheels and a clothing rack <laughs> on it, then great. But I don't know. I mean, th- if I had that thing, I don't, there's nowhere I could even put that in my apartment. <laughs> I don't even know where they, they're, everybody's putting it in their basement or they leave it in the car maybe. But no, Garage. I mean, I think like, like uh, Stephanie said, to each your, to each your own. If you feel that you need the dream duffel, by all means. However, there's several generations of us competitive dancers who got by just fine without a dream duffel. And now I sound like my mother. You know, well, back in my day, well, yes, back in my day, we didn't need a dream duffel because you had your garment bag. Even if you had 15 dances, you had two garment bags. And you stack everything up in the right order and it's right there. I personally, as competition director, hate the dream duffel because if everybody has a dream duffel, the dream duffel is the size of a human being. So in your dressing room, not only do you have you, the human being who is the dancer, you have your mother, who's probably also in the dressing room. Then you have your dream duffel, who is the size of a human. So that's three people. Then the tent. That's two extra Don't forget people. about the tent. And don't forget about the tent. Oh, God. Oh, God. So they just there's not enough room. If everybody has a dream duffel, we need double the dressing room space. And most of the time, you don't, you don't have enough anyway. So my thing is always, if, you, if there's any way you cannot bring that dream duffel... <laughs> That's that's the way to go. Just please don't because it just it creates havoc if you don't have the space. Yeah, and now that I'm now that I just chimed in about the tent, I think that's a new trend. Oh God, the tent. That's yeah, started maybe like is. since the pandemic because of social distancing and things yeah. and then also just like yeah. being comfortable of undressing around other people and I will say that like unfortunately that is an expectation of being a dancer is yes. quick changes and being comfortable yep. getting changed in front of other people and i'm not saying different you know genders like usually it's always a female identifying dressing room and a male identifying dressing room and they also have non-binary dressing rooms now at some competitions where they're unisex and and family dressing rooms if if dad needs Mm -hmm. to dress the young dancer types of things but like sorry i mean like you kind you kind of gotta you're not gonna get a single stall everywhere to right. change your costume when you only have five minutes to get back out there. Like, you just have to get a little bit comfortable and, and just your job is to change your costume. No one's looking at you. No one's, right. you know, it, just don't think that all eyes are on you. I know it might feel uncomfortable, but it's no different than how in gym class in school you have to, like, in the locker room, you have right. to change Dress into out. your. Well, and I wonder, is that still happening? I don't know. I have no gym idea, class? but like, uh, maybe, but, but I do think that, like, is 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 that a ridiculous expectation or is that just something that it's almost a rite of passage that like, okay, you need to change and mm-hmm. you need to do it right here because there's not any other place to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's also a big, not indicator, but like, that's an etiquette thing that you mm-hmm. need as studio owners and parents to start to teach your kids. Yeah. Okay, we are in here to change our costume. 
That's what we're doing in here. There is, you are not looking at anybody else. You are not dilly-dallying around. Mm-hmm. You are changing your costume and then you're leaving. Because again, those dressing rooms half the time, and I know y'all all out there have experienced this, they're not big enough. Right. There's not enough room. Change your costumes and go away. Right. <laughs> because there's not enough room. And, you know, so I, I think for me, like, that part's not necessarily so much an, a ridiculous expectation as just an expectation. Yeah. This is how we do it here. There's yeah. nowhere else to do it. If And if you put on tights, that that's half your body already covered. Right. You just had your tights on. Right. <laughs> so plug for tights. <laughs> yeah. 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 Get get comfortable changing in front of each other because it's it's part of the gig. Again, another another one that's part of the job of being a dancer. I can't tell you how many times I've had to do quick changes in front of people I didn't want to do quick changes in front of. And I make sure I have the right undergarments on and make sure I'm not exposing the world and get my job done and get back out on stage. That's that's our job behind the scenes. All right. Final few people to chime in. And we have a lot of judges that have a few things to say when it comes to competition dance in general and the training of being a dancer. Hi, this is IDA Judge Mary from Florida. And something that I wish we could kind of get away from in the competition world would be the emphasis on so many tricks within a routine. I feel like routines now are comprised of just a series of tricks instead of really watching a dancer's technique and performance quality and movement and actually watching them dance and perform a choreography. Often these tricks are taught to dancers that are so young that don't even have the development or the strength training yet within their bodies and their technique to even support such difficult moves. And I think if we could really go back and concentrate on forming and training dancers safely and really get back to watching their performance, I think that would be wonderful if we could kind of take the crazy tricks out of all of the performance. A few is great, but not the entire routine. And I think that's really changed over the past so many years that the emphasis is back on that. Hi, this is IDA Judge Maddie from Tampa, Florida. And one of the most ridiculous expectations that I've seen recently in the competition dance world is the focus on acrobatic elements and gymnastics. So what I mean by this is the fact that almost every dancer has their aerial and often has their front aerial as well. These are not dance vocabulary and your judges are not expecting to see these tricks executed in your routines, especially not in lyrical pieces, jazz pieces, contemporary pieces. These movements are not part of those genres and their respective vocabularies. So I think it's getting a little bit out of hand and dancers are so obsessed with what they see on social media that they're trying really, really hard to master these skills. While this can be really, really fun, just remember that it doesn't always add to your dance. Wow. Some really, some really great points from our two IDA judges, Mary and Maddie, in regards to all these tricks that we're seeing on stage. Yeah. Holding it down in Florida, both Mary and Maddie. I mean, I think if you are a listener to our podcast, you know that Courtney and I agree yep. <laughs> with yep. those sentiments. It is now an expectation because like Maddie said, it feels like every dancer you see has an aerial. Mm-hmm. And that's just becoming sort of a rite of passage into being a competitive dancer. And like like she said, it's not part of the vocabulary of, of any dance style. That's That's a gymnastics. That's for gymnastics. And while it's really cool and I wish I could have learned an aerial, I probably could have done a really mean aerial. I didn't. And it didn't hinder me from, you know, becoming a successful dancer or a teacher. But it it does seem like an expectation now yeah. for how much we see it. 
Yeah, and I I do agree that I think social media is partially to blame for that because I really don't think that we really saw a lot of acro until social media kind of really launched and took off in the past 10 years because sure there would be a, a like a little tumbling this or that but it wasn't in every dance it and it was actually one of those wow things that oh that dancer is a beautiful technician and they can do an aerial oh my gosh you're probably winning first overall just because it's something that is unex it used to be unexpected it was unexpected right now it's expected and it's actually just like another bot ma these days and another double pirouette these days is step aerial and like maddie said if you're doing it well you know right you know like when i see a well done aerial of course i'm gonna say that was a really nice aerial right but more often than not i see it a not well done aerial and then i have to take up time and talk about that right i'd really rather see you do a beautiful soda shaw yes or a really nice double pirouette but now i'm having to talk about your poorly done aerial and like no, don't you know? I don't want to say don't waste my time, but don't waste my time. Give me some dance, right? Because then I can tell you about dance, not because I don't. You know, there's yes, there's plenty of dance judges out there who could absolutely school you on how to do an aerial or how to do a front aerial or how to do a step out. I don't even have the vocabulary for it because I'm not a gymnast. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of judges out there who do have the vocabulary. But I would venture to say that at least half. I mean, I'm just throwing out a, a assumption here, but. Based on the age range of most judges these days, we did not grow up doing those things. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the, I don't have a lot of material to talk about it. You know, I don't have the background to talk about it with, with any kind of authority. So, you know, maybe that's a problem with us. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, it is hard because it, the dance world is shifting and changing to a point where it is going to be expected that we're going to see that often. But I think. It has gotten out of hand. I think that the tricks and poorly executed tricks has gotten out of hand or just the expectation on the choreographers and thinking that that needs to be in every single dance to succeed when choreographer and teacher, you might know that your dancers aren't ready for that. Don't feel pressured to put it in just because you see it on social media, just because you think it's going to get first place overall. Again, it's not only about it's a competition we want to win, of course, but we I don't know how many times we need to sit here and preach on the podcast to let everybody know that you don't you're not going to win with with acro in your dance. It doesn't automatically mean a win. There's so many other elements. And everyone's like, well, that that's the dance that that scored the highest and they had tons of tricks and flips in it. And it's like, yeah, but at the same time, that dance had a lot of a lot of other things that made it a first place overall dance, not the tricks. You're seeing the flash and you're seeing all of that. That's not the only thing that made that dance succeed. So it's it's hard f- for people to get their head wrapped around when they see it on social media and the kids feel the pressure and all of that. But I couldn't agree more with both of our judges. Yeah. And so I kind of piggybacking on that. It's a similar uh, feeling. But I think for especially for new dance parents and parents who don't have any background in dance, you know, if 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 you see social media dance before you see a studio's recital, for example, mm. you're seeing the cream of the crop, the most insane, the algorithm is showing you exceptional dance. Mm-hmm. That's what it's meant to do. It, if you're on TikTok, if you're on Instagram, you are seeing viral, insane, absurd, amazing dance from seven-year-olds sometimes. You know, that's the, those kids are out there. And I think for me, if I was somebody who, who came into dance not having any background in it and not understanding that that is abnormal, 
I might have the expectation of, oh gosh, well, my seven-year-old's not doing that. Should she be doing that? Right. Do I have to find a new studio so that she can do that? No, you don't. Social media is a liar. Uh, so yeah. be really careful with what you're looking at and what you're seeing because it's not reality. And I think that goes for all social media, you know, like none of it's reality. But go to your studio's recital. Go to the neighboring studio's recital. Go see what everybody else is really actually doing in your town. Because I, I guarantee you, not all the seven-year-olds are doing aerials. They're not doing front aerials. They're they're doing their nice, cute little dance, and they're developmentally progressing the way they should be for seven years old. Mm-hmm. And that's what your kids should be doing. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right. Ashley is back. IDA Dutch Ashley, she's back. And she has one more thing she wants to tell the world when it comes to competition dance. And it's a fun one. Hello, this is Judge Ashley from New York City. And one of the craziest things to me about the dance competition world is how a song can go so viral and become so popular and so used in the dance competition world that if you are a competition dancer or dance mom or teacher or anything like that, you know this song, but you play it for anyone else, they've never heard it. And it's always so crazy because it may not be you know, a top 10 popular song, but in the dance competition world, it is the song. Ashley, you're like speaking to my heart. I love it. (laughs) Yep. There are so many times I've said that on the podcast, especially on our music episode where we talk about the songs that we just don't want to hear ever again that are just the most overused competition songs. And some of them are songs that people are like, I've never heard that song in my entire life. How is it overused? It's like, I don't know. It's just somehow a standard competition dance song. (laughs) Like the one I'm thinking of right now that I don't want to hear again is the Lost Boy song. Oh, yeah. I am a lost boy. Peter Pan. Pan. Yeah. Go away. I don't want to hear. Where where did it come from? That wasn't in a Peter Pan movie. I don't know where it came from. It wasn't on Grey's Anatomy. Like (laughs) so many of these songs. And I love Grey's Anatomy. Don't get me wrong. They have great soundtracks. But like you'll hear some of those songs on Grey's Anatomy from the 25 seasons or whatever. But some of them, I just like Lost Boy. I'm like, literally, where? Yeah. Where did somebody find this? And why is it every competition for four times? <laughs> yeah. It, and there's there's just so many. I mean, it, not about angels comes up in my head that mm-hmm. I'm like, is, does Gosh, that play terrible. on the radio? I don't think it does. Like, who? Delilah? Where did it like, come who's from? playing this? <laughs> and, and why? Why does it circulate through? It, it's so. It's almost like people just are like. I'm supposed to use this song. I hear it and I'm right. supposed to steal the song that I heard. And then everyone, or does everyone have the same idea at the same time? Does one studio use a right. song that's like unique and different? And then everyone's like, sure, I'll take that next season. Is, and it, then- is it like a conspiracy? Like is does something in the song implant into our brains? Right. And it's like, it finds the brains of dance teachers. And it's right. like, it's this one, use this one. They're going to love it. And, <laughs> no, it, and no, like, we're not. There's a difference between like over, like, there, we're talking about songs that, like, I, like a song that I never get sick of is "Orange Colored Sky." For some reason, I just love that song. Oh, I love that song. It's such a great song. song. Like, but to me, that feels yep. like an an overused competition song. But I also think sure. that song people would know that song if it plays like at a department store yeah. or like people on know the that's radio. Natalie Cole. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like that's that's not what I'm talking about, and that's a <sighs> yeah. song that I'm never sick of. And there's a handful right, of those overused right. competition songs that I love to hear. Put them on and I will love and listen. But it's just those really obscure songs that are like one hit wonders from a random artist that never even made it to radio that have somehow become right. competition dance songs. And I don't even know that it was a hit. It wasn't even a one hit wonder. It was a song. Yeah, you're right. It was a song. You're right. They just, just found a song. A song. <laughs> 
and somehow it just keeps on playing for years. I mean, so like, like Lost Boy's been around mm-hmm. for years, and that, that Jar of Hearts. I mean, I think Jar oh, of Hearts Jar was of Hearts. on. It, so you that think was you can a dance. popular song. Yeah, that was a. She yeah. was popular. Christina Perry, I think. Perry, yeah, and she something. has other nice music, which I yeah. appreciate that she has other music that people do use. But whoever the heck sings Lost Boy, I don't know. You, <laughs> I don't know your album. Like, do you have more music? Maybe nobody uses it. <laughs> sorry if you're using it this year, everybody. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't like it. So I think the best advice yeah. is that there is a lot of music out there that you could be using. Do not feel obligated. If you have heard the song at competition more than three times, we as judges and the rest of your audience probably don't feel like hearing it again. So we get creative. Heard it a dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> however, we will take Orange Colored Sky. Yep. I will take any Celine Dion song. And I personally love my philosophy. I know some people are very against my philosophy from um, Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. Oh. Musical theater song. Yeah, I'm sick I of love, it. I love it. I'm sick I love of it. Song. No offense. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need to hear that. That's fine. I don't need to hear any more Wicked. There's other musicals that no. exist. Like we could go on this. No if y'all if y'all need some music advice, go listen to our music episodes that we've done in 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 the past. They're really fun. Yes. And then go down a YouTube or Spotify rabbit hole and go far far away from Lost Boy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hey listeners, you may remember hearing about Apollo Shocks earlier, and I'm here to tell you that they are an essential in my dance bag. Apollo Shocks have revolutionized dancer footwear by providing the benefit of a shoe with the comfort of a sock in one durable and high quality footwear. Apollo has a style of sock for every genre of dance. You can wear them in class, on stage at competition, and even on those long convention weekends. They easily replace your dance shoes or can be worn with your dance shoes to offer additional support and post-class recovery. I love wearing my Apollo shocks, and I know you will too. Try them out risk-free as they offer free returns and free exchanges. And don't forget to use our exclusive promo code IMPACT10 in all caps for 10% off your order at apollaperformance.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-A performance.com. Dance longer, dance stronger with Apollo Performance. All right, we have one more clip from a dance parent. So let's hear what they have to say. Hey guys, I'm a dance mom from Florida. And something that I think the general public that isn't involved in the dance world doesn't realize is how hard it is to get into college for dance. I have coworkers and neighbors and family members, and they see that my kid's a good dancer, and they just assume that she can go to any college dance program that she wants. They have no idea that there's an audition process, and they're just like, oh, well, she can just go to Juilliard, right? They know Juilliard's a good school, and my kid's a good dancer, and they just assume you can waltz right in and start taking classes. So I think maybe why they don't realize how hard it is, is they also don't realize just how many dancers there are in the US and how many want to go to college. Because if there's enough dancers to sell out competitions that are happening simultaneously in every major city all over the US, like on any given weekend, then how is there enough room for them to all go to college too? Wow, that is some real tea right there because that's true <laughs> it's very true i mean everyone says that oh aren't you well are you going to go to juilliard i mean we have all heard that because any that's it that's non-dancer the one. <laughs> doesn't know dance 
doesn't know this world at all. And the only thing that they have ever heard when it comes to dance is the word Juilliard. That is the, is the word Juilliard in the movie Center Stage. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't know. Do we, or not do even watch the other one. No, not Center Stage. Save the Last Dance. Julia Stiles. Save the Last Dance because she goes to Juilliard. Undeservedly. Sorry, oh, Julia Oh, God. Stiles. It was, yeah, no offense, Julia, but awful. Oh, I love that movie. It's dancing. so bad. So bad. Yeah, but like, uh, so I don't know the stats on Juilliard, but I know when I was uh, auditioning for colleges, I, I I didn't audition for Florida State's dance department. They are a modern-based department, but I did audition for their musical theater department, which, you know, lives in the same world as dance college majors. You know, it's also a very highly selective mm-hmm. process. And at the time, FSU took 10 females and 10 males from the entire country to make up their freshman class of musical theater majors. Mm-hmm. And I obviously did not get in but 10 like this dance parent just said if there's any number of competitions going on every single weekend from july or january to july in every city in america and they're sold out because most of them are there there's who's who's going to college like four of you there's not (laughs) there's not enough spots yeah i mean for all students you still have to get accepted into college you're not just like waltzing into a college yeah you have to get you know approved and accepted but it's even harder to get into highly competitive dance programs and art programs. Mm-hmm. And I think that can probably be said about a lot of different majors, depending. Oh, sure. But, you know, the dance world is is very, very highly competitive. And there's not a lot of slots for a lot of a lot of jobs. So that is a really great point on the parent end. And for all of the people in the family that have no idea what dance is and what it's about. And if you can actually make a career out of this, you can. But it's going to be tough and it's mm-hmm. going to, it is a very competitive field. Well, and it starts, you know, your your taste of the competitive nature of the whole thing starts with competitive dance. Right. You know, not every, like, yes, everybody's getting a trophy because we've set it up that way. But not everybody's winning first overall. Right. And then not everybody's getting into the college. And then from those small, that small amount of people who went to Juilliard, not all of them are getting a job. And then not all of those people are getting a second job. Mm-hmm. And then not all like it just keeps on going. And what I do find a little contradictory, though, now having, you know, seen seen the the industry change from the time I was auditioning for colleges to now, there's a whole lot more dance programs mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Many, many more schools offer a BFA or a BA. Yeah. Schools that you wouldn't expect, you know, and, yeah. I'm, and, and not that I know firsthand, but there's plenty of schools out there that aren't Juilliard that give you really good training. Yeah. And that are setting dancers up for success. But then, like you said, Courtney, then you get to New York, you get to L.A., you get to Chicago. There's not enough jobs. Yeah. So what's happening now, I think, is we have, yes, it's challenging to get into a dance school for sure, but there's more of them. So that makes it slightly easier, which means there's more dance majors who are going into the industry Mm. and there's not enough jobs. Yeah. And then, then, you know, that just is what it is. And it kind of stinks and makes me, you know, hope for... The people who say, you know what? Wow, this this performing on stage thing isn't for me, but I still really love dance. So maybe I'm going to maybe I'm going to do an internship backstage and be a stage manager. Maybe I'm going to think about starting my own company. You know, maybe there's other ways to create more jobs for dancers, because right now there just aren't enough Mm. to accommodate the amount of people coming into the business. Yeah, that's true. Great point. And we just did our jobs and pay rates episode. So y'all go give a listen to that if you want to hear more about what it's like in the professional dance world and the jobs that are available out there. We're wrapping up over here in this episode. And I know it's a long one, but it's a fun one. And we always love doing these uh, these clips 
where all of our guests and our IDA judges, our fans can chime in and share their thoughts on the ridiculous expectations of the competitive dance world. I know that I have one more that I want to personally share that wasn't really mentioned. And it's actually a new one that I just recently learned about. And I think this is a extreme. So get ready, everybody. It's a little extreme. Here we go. With, you know, I talked about the whole costuming thing and how you have to wear leotards on stage, which again, couldn't pay me enough money to do with no tights. I have actually been, I've sat in the judge's chair and I've thought like, when it comes to grooming and making sure that you are not exposing anything out to the audience when you are in a very high cut leotard. And I'm sure everyone understands where I'm heading with this, with this observation. I've been told and I've heard that there isn't the expectation to get groomed for stage by getting bikini waxes for your dancers. And that is extreme to me. That is out of control to me. I have so many thoughts on this. I, sure, you know, when you get to a certain age, you have to start shaving your legs. You have to start shaving your armpits. I don't want to be going out on stage with hairy armpits, but if that's what you want to go out on stage, then great. But is your teacher going to be okay with you going out on stage with hairy armpits? And is that a conversation that needs to be had? I think it might need to be if you don't want to shave, but your teacher expects you to shave. Because what if the parent doesn't want the kid to shave wherever? You know, is that a conversation that's being had in the studio spaces when it comes to grooming for stage? Because everyone, the parent and the kid might have two completely different expectations than the studio. And I don't know, I don't know how I feel about a studio saying you should get a bikini wax to wear your costume on stage. I don't know if that is fair. And I don't think that that is acceptable, to be quite honest. I think what needs to be had is a conversation of how are you going to groom yourself for the stage? Are you prepared for that? And if you're not, then we don't put you in a bikini on stage with no tights Mm -hmm. is what I think needs to be happening. Thoughts? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you said the word extreme. Like, that's, I agree, that's extreme. I mean, I don't know that you could even take a child. You could probably buy your bikini wax kit or whatever from the store. No, people and take do, their kids do what you do. to the, to the wax. Like, what waxing place is going to wax a child? Like, that's weird. It's, I don't know, sorry. I'm trying to be non-judgmental, but like, I think that's weird. I think it would be weird to take a child to a bikini waxing salon and say, please wax these parts of my child. Like, I don't. I agree. What? I think the ex- the word extreme is the right word. <laughs> I think that what I've seen is yeah. it's teens, but even there's, I would not, uh, I have to be honest. I, I mean, I haven't even started bikini waxing until I was an adult, like an, an adult. adult, a straight you know? up adult. Because I was, uh, I was like, kind of like, I don't want to go do that. And, you know, it just feels weird. Like, it just feels weird to me. And of course, there's other ways of grooming. We love some Nair. Nair still smells gross, but it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are there are ways to make it work and get stage ready, but I think that it's the expectation that people are just supposed to do it, and I'm not sure if conversations yeah. are being had, and then parents might right. feeling pressured to have to put their kid into a situation of getting waxed sooner than they might even want to because they, quote unquote, have to be ready for competitive dance, and it's like the same thing applies with spray tans. Like if studios are telling kids, like, you have to get a spray tan for stage, it's different if, like... I think all of this is very different if the parent's okay with it and the kid is okay with it. But to feel pressured mm-hmm. into doing something like that. Or having it be a requirement. Because or, I yes. can't imagine that's, that's some, that a studio owner is telling the group of 15 kids, if you'd like to get a spray tan, feel free. Nobody's, 
I don't think that's going to happen because the goal of a spray tan is to have everybody be a uniform color. Right. Which, again, is there's that sort of problematic in and of itself. Uh-huh. But, but so, like, I don't know. I don't know what the conversation – I would be so curious to hear the conversation. Like, I want to be a fly on the wall yeah. in a studio that says, you need to go to a waxing place or you need to all get a spray tan because – I, th- I think that if a conversation would, and when I say conversation, I mean a- an actual back and forth where I can have an opinion that is different than your opinion. Mm-hmm. And I can voice that and not feel pressured to do what you want me to do or, or feel not even compelled, I guess, but like forced because if it's part of, you know, yes, we have an expectation that you wear your earrings. Okay. Well, the option is pierced or not. You right. gave me the option to do the thing you want me to do, but doesn't sound like in these instances, like you're either getting a bikini wax or you're not. And we want you to get one. And I don't know. <laughs> you're definitely, you're either getting a bikini wax or you're shaving. There's no, right. there's, there's really not any in between because I don't think that anyone would want anyone going out on stage revealing hair where we shouldn't be see where I, I don't want to see it. Mom doesn't want to see it. Audience members don't want to see it. So like, those are your two options. And I also, I think that that feels a little extreme at times to request that right. and expect that well, from and young the changing not bodies. Tights. Right, because the if the option never was tight, tights, we could then great. Let's have the option be tights, but nobody's going to say, "Well, you could in your group dance." You know, if you feel like wearing tights, feel free. Nobody's saying that, right? Because of the uniformity. So to exactly, so like the for me, I I don't know. I'm pro tights. <laughs> That's all I have to say. I'm I'm pro finding a costume that everyone's comfortable in. Is yes, agreed. I love. A no tights look, I think it looks fantastic. But if every single dancer isn't on board with properly grooming, or if you have parent mm-hmm. pushback of, I don't want my kid having to groom themselves to be able to wear this costume with no tights, then you have to find a new costume. There isn't, to me, like, I don't know if those conversations are being, are happening because I have seen some costumes that have revealed far too much that I want to see. And maybe those conversations weren't being had as far mm-hmm. as grooming and it needs to be talked about if you're gonna put a kid in a costume that's that revealing so <laughs> you know it's it's something that i think is a very sticky conversation and but one i wanted to mention because this is something new to that's a new like we said it's mm-hmm. new to the world but i think more conversations need to be had and i also think that dancers need to advocate for themselves if they don't feel comfortable with something speak up because yeah. you're not in a professional well, paid listen, job right now where you, you know, you shouldn't right. feel forced to wear something you don't want to wear. And, you know, listeners, chime in. Let us know. Does your studio do this? Send us a message because, like like we said, we're seeing it from an outside perspective of, oh, it seems like perhaps that's what's happening. Right. Is that what's happening? Like, we don't know. So I, I'm really curious. Like, if you're a studio out there that requires, you know, a grooming, uh, some kind of grooming habit. I'm just, I want to know what your conversation sounds like. I want to know if you had any pushback and what do you do when there is pushback? How do you accommodate everyone right. with such an extreme ask? Right. I think this will be a nice conversation starter for our Facebook group. <laughs> yeah. So if you are in our Facebook Chime group, in. head on over to Making the Impact at the Dance Competition Podcast community to keep this conversation going because it's a, it's a hot topic. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode all about ridiculous expectations for competitive dance. Thank you to all of the IDA judges and special guests for sending in your clips and helping contribute to this awesome episode. Don't forget to follow Making the Impact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want more exclusive episodes, support our podcast by joining our Platinum Premium membership for only $5 a month. 
Subscribers receive free Making the Impact stickers, shoutouts live on the air, ad-free listening, and exclusive access to our Q&A episodes for members only. Join now at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash platinum premium, or click the link in our show notes. Be sure to check out IDA affiliated competition, Axis Dance Competition, where Linda Diamond's years of experience brings you the vitality of a new beginning. Teachers, studio owners, dancers, and parents have shared what they want in a dance competition, and Axis is here to deliver. This innovative yet traditional event promises to be a combination of fun, professionalism, and passion. Their goal is that each dancer leaves with a smile on their face and the incentive to be the best they can be. With events in St. George, Corvallis, Las Vegas, Boise, Pittsburgh, Farmington, Billings, and Carson City, their 2024 season is going to be their best season yet. Full panels of IDA judges are used at every Axis event to offer constructive, quality feedback and scoring. To learn more about Axis Dance Competition and to register for an upcoming event, head to their website now at AxisDanceCompetition.com. Coming up in the next few weeks on Making the Impact, tune in for a special Q&A with Courtney, an episode all about the boys, and a day in the life at dance competition. Wishing you and your dance families a happy holidays. We'll see you in 2024. Until then, keep dancing.